This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hunt of a Lifetime, changing lives one adventure at a time, empowering kids with courage. Join us in creating memories for kids facing life-threatening illnesses. We are here to make dreams come true. From magical outdoor escapades to heartwarming experiences, every moment is cherished. With every step of our young heroes, find a network of support, love, families, volunteers, and friends unite to uplift spirits and spread smiles. Amidst breathtaking landscapes, kids find strength they never knew they had. Together we conquer challenges and celebrate victories. Be a part of the movement that transforms lives. Your contribution can bring courage and hope where it's needed most. Go to huntofalifetime.org to get involved. Let's create a world of cherished moments and unstoppable bravery. Brought to you in part by Maine Operation Game Thief, New Hampshire Wildlife Heritage Foundation, International Wildlife Crime Stoppers, and the North American Game Warden Museum. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Warden's Watch, episode 119, Martin Thibault, Canada. And I'm going to leave it at Canada because Martin, as you guys are going to find out, is a federal officer for the country of Canada, and he's going to describe what his jurisdiction is and what he does, and as well as give me a little geography lesson, so... Uh, always a pleasure. That's what I love about these podcasts. I learn a lot of things too. And it's just uh, a joy to, to sit down and talk with some of these officers and 
engage them in something that I don't know and that I can be educated on. So, But before we get into that, I just wanted to read a Christmas card to you guys that I got from my former colonel, Colonel Ron Alley. And uh, Ron was the colonel that actually hired me. So, And also he was the colonel when I was shot in the line of duty and gave me a lot of support. It did some cutting edge things back 25 years ago, critical incident debriefing wasn't really just maybe just starting as well as uh, counseling. So Ron kind of guided me through that time and uh, I think it was well worth it. Um, So he says, Merry Christmas to all. Thank you for all the support and efforts you gave to me and the department. My dentist has a friend who knows a game warden who does a thing called a podcast. Believe me, before I left the office, we had him on the phone, and I straightened him out on a few things about Lieutenant Wayne Saunders. Ron and Sherry, and I appreciate that. Uh, That was really good to hear from him, and uh, apparently we're getting out when the dentist is talking about the podcast. So that's a good thing. So you guys, next time you're in there getting your teeth cleaned or whatever, uh, you should talk to your dentist about the podcast and see if he's listening to Warden's Watch. Thank you for listening. Please share and enjoy as we go to Canada with Martin Tabot. I'm sitting down with Martin Tabot. He's an operations manager and training specialist for Environment uh, Canada, which is also Environment Climate Control, and you are the Wildlife Enforcement Agency federally for the country of Canada. We are. I mean, we are the uh, counterpart uh of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Canada, basically, we don't do exactly the same thing, but it's uh, it's very close to what the U.S. Fish and Wildlife uh, does in the states. So you have jurisdiction from one ocean to the other, just like U.S. Fish and Wildlife does. We do, yes, we do. We have um, uh, we have five different regions. I mean, we have a uh, region Northwest uh, Pacific and Yukon, Con, and then we have Prairie and Northern Region, which which is all your Central Canada including uh, Yellow, uh, the Northwest Territories in Nunavut. And then you have the bigger provinces of uh, Ontario and Quebec who are their own uh, region. And then we have one region that covers Atlantic Canada, uh, the, the eastern, the, the maritime uh, provinces of uh, of Canada. And you'd have a different fisheries division that did fisheries enforcement? or We do, yeah. We, okay. we, we, don't, uh, we don't deal with fish unless there's, uh, you know, interprovincial or international trade. Uh, typically, your uh, fisheries will be dealt, handled by the various provinces, and uh, commercial fisheries, uh, generally speaking, commercial fisheries will be uh, under our uh, Department of uh, Fisheries and Oceans, which is uh, like your um, uh, NOAA. NOAA. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And they have officers as well. They have officers as well. Yes, they have, they have officers as well. Uh, they're a bigger department than we are. Uh, I wouldn't be able to tell you exactly how many officers DFO has, but they're slightly bigger than us. That's a huge resource for Canada is their oceans. It is because we basically we we have the Pacific Ocean out west, we have the Arctic Ocean uh, in northern Canada, and uh, we have of course the uh, the Atlantic Ocean um, on the eastern coast. So a huge resource for us for sure. Now you're in training, but I want to go back to your to your roots and. You're you were an investigator initially, right? I mean, that's that's part of your job, just like a few U.S. Fish and Wildlife agent. Yep, exactly. I mean, I started as a basically uh, what the U.S. Fish and Wildlife would call a refuge officer. Mm-hmm. 
that's how I really started uh, my career. And then uh, when we first met, I'd say I was probably in, uh, an investigator in, in Montreal. Would, I was hired back then to do, uh, we were new in the, newly in the business of uh, controlling wildlife trade all the sighty species uh and we got of course we we, we got uh you know positions and budgets to um to uh deal with this new mandate and that's how i got hired uh, in montreal and that's how we, we got to know each other right yeah yeah right over the border in montreal yep so that was that was that was really really good good connection early on in both of our careers and it was as we progressed now now you're in training and you're in charge of training for the the, the feds I'm not, uh, I'm uh, officially, I'm a loan uh, resource. I mean, I'm still in my operations manager. Uh, I started, like you said, I started my career in Quebec and uh, I did leave at one point. I, I, I left for about a year to do like your USDA would do in the, does in the States, right? The uh, agricultural enforcement. Mm-hmm. I, I went for, for one year and I came back to wildlife enforcement. But when I came back, that's when I left uh, Montreal and uh, started working in Ottawa, and uh, I did work. I worked for for a couple of years. I worked for our uh, headquarters uh, office, and then I became a manager in Ontario region uh, for the eastern and northern district. So basically, an office in Ottawa and an office in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, just across from Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. Yeah, uh, officers, you know, enforcing federal law across uh, northern and eastern Ontario. And how many federal agents do you have in your department? Uh, I just did the roster with uh, Nawia. We're just under uh, badged uh, officers. We're just under 100 right now. Uh, that includes all the uh, the directors, the regional directors, and the, the managers. Uh, field officers, it's probably fair to say that, uh, you know, when all positions are staffed, probably 65 to 70 field officers nice all doing uh, federal enforcement just like ours would do so you focus on the federal laws not the provincial laws yes uh, depending on the jurisdiction i mean some of our regions like in ontario where i'm uh, my substantive position is located we do the provincial enforcement as well but it's just incidental to uh, our federal duties i mean we're not out there enforcing the provincial uh legislation we're just appointed to deal with it if we find something illegal, but our main mandate is uh, wildlife trade. So basically, uh, your import and export of uh, endangered species, whatever is controlled by CITES or whatever is in, is uh, imported into the country illegally, like the Lacey Act does in the states, and the interprovincial stuff. Again, uh, similar to the Lacey Act uh, in the U.S. I mean, if uh, if wildlife is harvested Ill- illegally in a province and transported in a different jurisdiction. Uh, we we can uh, we can deal with that. We can enforce it. Uh, we can we, t- we can take action when dealing with um, illegally traded wildlife. The other main piece of legislation that we enforce is the Migratory Bird Convention Act, which is the equivalent of your uh, Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And to a lesser extent, we deal with uh, federal wildlife areas, basically uh, federally protected areas. We do uh, where we do own the land. Various activities are uh, permitted, uh, depending on the level of protection that's granted to the uh, to the uh, protected area. So it can go from anywhere uh, to prohibited access to uh, some of our wildlife areas. Will allow people to hunt as long as you have uh, the proper permits to do so. 
depending on the, on the jurisdiction and the nature of the work, depending on the, on the protected area, the nature, the nature of the work we do will change drastically. And then the one last thing that the more recent piece of legislation is a federal endangered species act, which is really meant to be a safety net. Say for instance, if a province or a territory, uh, doesn't have their own, uh, legislation to protect endangered species, they can use, or we can come in and deal with the enforcement, do various, uh, actions to protect the, the uh, endangered species in those areas. But that's usually as a safety net, like I said, it's a, it's a provincial jurisdiction, but we'll come in, uh, to assist if, if there's a need to do so. So nice. That's pretty much the spectrum. I mean, we only have four acts that we enforce. Uh, we're also appointed to do some of the provincial, uh, the enforcement of some of the provincial legislation. And some of our officers, interestingly, some of our officers are, uh, we call them cross-designated uh, because our department also deals with the uh, environmental enforcement, like your EPA okay. uh, in the States. Uh, we have uh, part of our um, enforcement branch uh, does the environmental enforcement. And some of our officers are cross-designated. So say, for instance, in, in a remote area like um, in Nunavut, we have officers that are cross-designated so they can deal with whatever. Uh, if there's an oil spill uh, that affects uh, the environment, they can deal with it. And the same oil spill could also have an impact on, uh, on seabirds, for example. So they will be appointed to um, deal with it either under the uh, Environmental Protection Act or under the uh, Migratory Bird Convention Act. So they'll be able to use uh, both tools because they're appointed under uh, each piece of legislation. Nunavut, Nunavut, yeah, that's the 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 youngest uh, territory. It used to be the, the Northwest Territories used to be uh, one huge area, uh-huh. and I think it was 1999 that uh, we got a, a third territory called Nunavut, and it's um, it, it's a it's a jurisdiction. Where, where the uh, Inuit do their own, uh, they have their own government. Their uh, it, it's their them to manage it as uh, as they deem fit, and uh, it's it's been that way since 1999. Wow, and that's yeah. not really well known. I wouldn't think so. Cause... No, I'm, unless you're a geography buff, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily know. Yeah, I mean, as you're as you're talking, yeah, that was the second time I heard none of it, and I'm like, now wait a second here. Yep. So thanks for explaining that part of the Northwest Territories. It's it, out. A Northwest that, Territories was broken down into, you know, a part, a Western part that mm-hmm. remain, uh, remains called to this day the Northwest Territories. But the Eastern and all the Baffin lands became, uh, most of the Baffin lands became Nunavut in 1999. And it's a different jurisdiction with its own enforcement agency. They have their own COs. They have their, they, they do, you know, it's their, um, it, it's a different administration. Mm-hmm. Now, First Nation administration. Okay. And that's what I was just going to ask about yep. First Nation. So it's uh, indigenous people, basically. Fair, yeah. The, most of the population in, in, uh, in Nunavut is, uh, is First Nation. First Nation. Yes. No. no, very, very interesting. And their laws have to be very different, the general provinces, I would imagine, because of that. Well, they have... First Pretty Nation, much like our tribal. Yes, they have their own, they, they, and it's it's built into our, our our constitution. Actually, I mean, First Nations have a right to harvest resources uh, for assistance, and of course, I mean, they they they're allowed to do so. And it's uh, a, no matter where in Canada, they have you know, there's treaties that have that have been signed that are uh, honored 
and uh, where First Nations are allowed to harvest and, uh, uh, you know, be it fish or, or wildlife. Uh, and it's well recognized. It's, it, it's a constitutional right for them to do so. Gotcha. So it's overall legislation. I mean, our const- the way our constitution is, uh, we have uh, the Charter of, uh, of Rights where, um, and the Constitution Act. And these two pieces um, are every, all federal law has to obey uh, the principles of, the, of our Constitution and uh, Charter of Rights. So whatever is built in there is, is uh, above, over and above all federal law. Gotcha. Similar to very similar yeah, to yeah. our tribal. I would say, yeah. yeah, it's probably very similar. Except how much does Nunavut cover? Oh, that's a good question. It's a big territory. I mean, uh, when you uh, look at the Baffin lands, I mean, it's a huge area. It's not uh, it's it's not densely populated, but it, it's huge. Um, I'd say the biggest provinces, I believe, is Quebec. And I'm not sure which one is bigger, Ontario or Nunavut, but uh, it's up there. I mean, it's a, it's a large, very large area. Very, um, yeah, it goes all the way up. To, I'm not sure the I-80s uh, as far as latitude goes. Wow. Yeah, very close to um, well, very close to Greenland, of course, and very quite close to the to the North Pole as well, right? So, wow. so it's located on the eastern side of Canada. Uh, Nunavut is central. I mean, it's it, it's it's the if you look at the map, I mean, you look at at uh, at, at Canada and you go all the way up and you'll see um, there's several islands. In, in northern Canada, and that's all pretty much part of Nunavut, and uh, they're all, um, yeah, that's that's the extent of the territory. It's big, it's huge. Uh, it's pretty cool getting a little geography lesson here <laughs> on the Warden's Watch podcast because I'm thinking if I don't know, probably half the people don't know listening uh, about that. It's like uh, you're talking about some fantasy land there. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we're going to take a little trip to Nunavut. And it's not easy to visit. I mean, it's 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 quite expensive to go there. Yeah. So, I mean, we have national parks. I mean, there's areas that you can visit, and uh, the people are very welcoming. But it's uh, it's a different, I mean, it's not a very well-known destination. It's uh, it's, not, it's unfortunate because it's, uh, it's very pretty. Yeah, mm-hmm. the Arctic is very pretty. Very sensitive, but also very pretty. You've spent some time up in that area. Too. I was there. I visited a few times. Yes, uh, I didn't spend. I, I when I started my career, I worked in northern Canada, but uh, I was more on the eastern side. I was working, uh, you know, in um, the easternmost uh, part of the province of Quebec, which was sometimes within walking distance of uh, Labrador. So, again, it's 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 a different. Uh, Canada's huge. I mean, it's over three thousand miles across. So it's very, it varies. I mean, from the East Coast to the West Coast and from the, the southernmost tip to the, um, the Baffin lands. I mean, it's, it's yeah, there's um, like like the U.S. really with, you know, right. with the, uh, the Pacific Islands and uh, Alaska and all the continental U.S. I mean, you get a tremendous variety of habitats and wildlife and, and so forth. So, yeah, yeah, I don't know for sure. And within those provinces, it always amazes me, Quebec. Being a, a French-speaking uh, province, when everybody else is English, yeah, and that's it's like stepping, you know. Of course, I border Quebec, uh, so I've had that experience my whole life. But it's kind of odd to go to another spot in Canada and they speak English to you. So that's what always uh, 
I'm so used to hearing the French all the time that when I go to somewhere else in Canada and we speak English, it just it kind of blows my mind every time. I'm like, this cracks me up. Quebec's right there. We've been dealing with, dealing with speaking French people, and which is nice because some of the cases we've had on the border, I've had to call in some, uh, you know, the the game wardens from Quebec province so they can interpret. Of course. So, uh, which has been really cool. And it was it was funny is once they got there, the other guys seemed to speak English every day. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes but, they just need a little incentive. Yeah. Can, can you give us a case that you've worked on that's uh, pretty cool, and uh, especially in that federal realm of uh, Canada and uh, what you do specifically? I mean, I was a field officer for many years in Quebec. I mean, uh, once you're always the good stories come from. Yeah. <laughs> what good case that comes to mind. I mean, it's, it's a little dated, but it, it was uh, uh, how I started working with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service back in the day. Uh, we had a commercial outfitter. Uh, that was uh, baiting uh, heavily in the St. Lawrence River corridor, uh, maybe an hour, an hour and a half east of Montreal. A very well-known outfitter, and uh, we had reasons to believe that the uh, success rate was fairly high, and there had to be a reason for it to be that way. So um, we worked with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and you, you know Pat Bosco really well. Oh, right? yes, I do. And uh, Kevin O'Brien back in the day. And we got them to come in as, um, you know, undercover officers. And, of course, they confirmed that there was a lot of baiting going on. And uh, we did the takedown on this place. And that was, I mean, that's a while ago. That was in 1994. So it was my first case that I really worked with uh, U.S., you know, be it state or, uh, in this case, uh, federal officers. But that's how I, I realized, you know, that there's a lot we can do together um, because we share... Uh, we share a border and uh, we have a lot of uh, hunters and fishermen that come to Canada to uh, to hunt and fish. And, and it's, um, you know, by working together and having uh, a good partnership, uh, you can accomplish so much more. And uh, yeah, so this was the first, that's the cut that, I mean, it's not the most recent, but that's the one that comes to mind. If, if you ask me, that was, uh, that was a very... Uh, this was a duck case. It was a duck, waterfowl, yeah. And they were putting the corn right to the docks, I take it. Yeah, I mean, it, this area of, of the St. Lawrence River, it's all uh, small islands, very marshy. And, of course, I mean, uh, it's all, you know, ponds and, and uh, uh, mostly puddle ducks. I mean, it wasn't diving ducks, it was uh, it was puddle ducks. And, of course, I mean, when it uh, when they're baited, they're much more predictable and... Of course, you get a, a much higher success rate than if you just rely on your calling skills and your decoys and whatnot and being in the right place at the right time. Yeah, so there was a reason for the success rate. And sure enough, by um, working with U.S. Fish and uh, sending off officers in there, we, we were able to, um, to charge. And it's funny because we did another takedown probably, I'd say... 15 to 18 years after I was involved in the first takedown and we, I mean, you know, sometimes we get, we deal with chronic people, chronic mm -hmm. offenders. So we, this, you know, this particular uh, business was, was charged back in 1994. And then again, it, I think two or three times, uh, between 2010 and, uh, and today. So, yeah. So it's, it, it's, you know, I was involved in the first takedown and I got there, uh, again in 2012 and dealt with the same people. So, <laughs> <laughs> familiar faces yes. not, I mean not not bad folks by any uh, no. not at all I mean it's just 
there's a lot of pressure with outfitters and whatnot, right? They have to mm-hmm. perform and sometimes the stakes are high and it's, it's, it's tempting. So yeah. And when you're making money off of wildlife, exactly. corruption has a tendency to seep into that. Yep. And you're, when your success rates high, you're either really good or you're cheating. Exactly. That's a good way to put it. And I have a friend that calls me up every time he gets a big deer. So he gives me blow by blow. So he doesn't think I'm cheating. Cause I always tell him that I'm like, <laughs> uh, he's like, I don't want you to think I'm cheating. Cause I got another huge buck here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, it's we all know, right? That's uh, sometimes, um, especially when dealing with with wildlife enforcement, it's it's getting to be uh, serious. I mean, uh, uh, but if you if you go back, um, you know, twenty twenty five years, I mean, the penal- the penalties were not always in line with the, they were not always a deterrent. Let's just put it this way. Uh, it's changing. I mean, we're we now we we now have uh, mandatory minimum fines and and so forth. It becomes more of a deterrent. So yeah. But it, often it's uh, you know it, it it's very low risk for 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 an offender to be caught and it, it's tempting. I mean it's yeah they look look at the uh, the profit that can be made and the risk of getting caught and yeah uh, absolutely Especially and I'm sure you've yeah you've seen the same thing yeah anytime you're gonna make money off of wildlife there is corruption it yep. doesn't it just matters With what degree where you're at. Um, who know whoever saw the glass eel thing coming with the elvers and stuff when we're, you're getting thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars a pound. Right. Um, and people are going out and making a hundred dollars in an evening by harvesting, you know, wildlife beyond its limits. Tempting. Very yeah. tempting. I, absolutely. And almost like you said, when the fines aren't in line, in line, it's worth the risk. Exactly. It's, it's almost like you have to go off the, 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 the book sometime when you, when you do that. Right. So... Yeah, very interesting. And it, it, import, import and export out of Canada, I'm sure, just like the U.S., there's all kinds of issues with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just wondering what you see in coming into Canada illegally and what you see going out of Canada illegally. Uh, coming into Canada illegally, I mean, it could be a very, uh, you know, very anything really. I mean, we have, you know, uh, traditional Asian medicine often contains uh, endangered species. So we, we tend to see a lot of that. Uh, it, it's often uh region specific like for example our we have uh it's more common to deal with traditional asian medicine in uh vancouver for example where the, the asian population is higher and in toronto whereas in in, in um other ports of entry it it wouldn't be that common to to see the, the same the same commodity um uh, it, it anything really i mean it could be a timber trade is pretty big the problem with timber is uh often we cannot we can identify the wood. I mean, we can do uh, you know lab analysis and whatnot, and we were able to identify the wood. But they're not always uh, protected by CITES. Only a few specific species of trees are protected by CITES. But the issue with timber is that there's a lot of illegal logging going on in uh, in uh, Russia, for example, uh, as a seems to be a. a a hotspot for illegal uh, timber operations. But if you're not dealing with a protected species, then you have to demonstrate that it was taken illegally. And if you're dealing with a piece of lumber... Coming from Russia. Coming from Russia and being often transiting in a third, you know, in a, yeah, in, a, in another country, then it becomes hard to establish that the, wow. the commodity is illegal. So... Unless we're dealing with the actual CITES species, the uh, mahogany comes to mind. The mahogany is, is, is protected, and it's fairly easy to identify. 
So if you're dealing with something that's easily identifiable, then you you know there's a there needs to be a permit. But if it's a you know timber that was harvested illegally in a foreign nation and it gets imported into Canada, we still have the burden to prove that the timber was illegally harvested, and it's not always easy to do so. Because like anything else, I mean, it gets laundered, right? It it yep. gets laundered by just making it transit through, uh, you know, another country. And then it gets re-exported and you kind of lose track. You cannot establish where it's coming from. So even though you may be able to prove that country X has uh, strict export laws or, I mean, if it comes from country X, but it transits through country Y before coming to either Canada or the U.S., then... It's not easy. Yeah. No. Very, very interesting. I think it's the first lumber uh, discussion I've had on the mm-hmm. Watch podcast. It's uh, That's one of the things. Uh, anything that is controlled by, uh, and con- I'm not sure, I don't think it's the same in the U.S. because I think the lumber is handled by USDA. Mm-hmm. Don't quote me on this. Uh, when I was a field officer, it was that way. Uh, anything wildlife was U.S. fish, but yeah. uh, if it was timber or plants, it was USDA. Sounds correct. Uh, it may have changed. But uh, no, as uh, when it comes to uh, the enforcement of CITES in Canada, uh, imports and exports, um, it is um, all of our, um, under our mandate. And it's all about the inexpensiveness of that lumber, I would assume, when it comes into that market, depending where it comes from. It's either high end or low end. Exactly. Uh, I know we talk about the, the legalization of marijuana with mm-hmm. John Norris a lot because, uh you saw California legalize it, yet it, it didn't take the illegalness out of the other stuff. It actually enhanced it because of the cost of the legal stuff. Yep. So, and nobody wants to pay, you know, 70% in taxes and exactly. it's, it's up that high. Same thing. And then they filter that illegal stuff into the legal stuff. It just, uh, it just becomes dirty. Exactly. <laughs> well, the same way with the lumber is what you're talking about. No, same, exactly the same thing. I mean, it's, uh, again, uh, I profit, low risk. I mean, uh, it's... When people start hearing you're investigating the lumber company, you know, I mean, they're going to be like, what the heck? Exactly. (laughs) People don't always know, you know, what's at stake and whatnot, but um, that's what, I know that's one of the things that we do. And you were asking about um, uh, Canadian species. Canadian species were really concerned with our uh, marine mammals, like uh, walrus, uh, the narwhal, um, polar bears and so forth uh, but we've uh, we've yeah. done a pretty good job of ensuring compliance with uh, with with those species over the years so that's obviously that's one of the the, con- the, the concerns that we have um, and uh, I mean we, we also have um, hunting trophies they're not always necessarily controlled by CITES but again I mean if there's um, if there's high value sheep or um, uh, moose or whatever I mean there, there's always the the risk of you know dealing with uh, illegal activities because of the profit involved and whatnot, right? right. It when you want to do stuff legally and you need to uh, hire the outfitters and uh, purchase the tags and whatnot, it's uh, it's pretty expensive and it's tempting for illegal operations to offer the same thing, you know, at a more competitive rate, but right. not necessarily in a legal way, right? Yeah. So, as far as Canadian species are, is concerned, bears. Uh, marine mammals, definitely something that uh, that comes out of Canada that we need to monitor. Uh, eel, same yeah. thing, same thing. A lot of uh, 
the European eel is uh, controlled by CITES. I, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, not sure about the American eel. I know we have had uh, cases where uh, we were dealing with a lot of, you know, bulk heel shipments, and you know, you, you get a mixture of both, right? And, right? and they're all in the same shipment, so you need to have a sampling protocol to establish how much, you know, European eel has, has been smuggled. And it's uh, again, it's not something that's definitely uh, necessarily black and white. I mean. It's a, bit of, it's a bit of a gray area and a bit of a slimy area when it comes to eels. Yes, sure. <laughs> Sampling eels, I'm like, yeah. wow, that's such a, you're getting slimy. Sure. Oh, of course, yeah. So, and then to identify European eels basically against an American eel. Uh, it has to be done, you know, we we, we send that to the lab. It has, has, to be DNA. Basis, yeah. has to be DNA because okay. you wouldn't be able to tell. I mean. No, not in the field. I can't no, imagine. no, no, no. Maybe if you had to, you know, and technically, fit. I think it would be a Canadian, a Canada eel. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe if you had the fish in the tank and you could look at it, you know, take your time and look at it, but it, when it's After all... After it's harvested and... Yeah, no way. Or even processed for that matter. Exactly. Yeah. No. Frozen sometimes, Frozen. even. So, yeah. no, you can't. You just can't. And I don't think listeners understand how slimy this job gets sometimes, especially when it comes to fish and commercial fishing and crawling into these things to look at catches and bycatch and yeah especially it, in a you had what you had was a clean uniform and now you go home and throw it away exactly <laughs> no it's a, it, it can be a messy business or with dead things too dead things uh when things get rotted and you have to investigate when we're the the csi of wildlife that's or, what we, that's what we do yeah yeah and that can i, I have seen uh many a man hurling over what we have to do. <laughs> Vicks under your nose, whatever you got to do. It's it's just... Uh, yeah. Sometimes it's a, it's a messy business. Yeah. And and you get used to it eventually. Of course, like know? anything else. Yeah, the, the old solid guy always loves to bring the trainee and have him you know, do his first moose autopsy. <laughs> the thing's so bloated and it's, you know... I remember, and I probably have told this story on Warden's Watch before, Brian Gillis, who's actually a major in New York now, uh, I had him, he was started in New Hampshire, and... Uh, he had his first moose autopsy, and the thing was bloated up so loud, so big, Martin. So when he just got that punctured that gasket, it blew his hair straight back like he was uh, Marilyn Monroe's <laughs> skirt. And the stench was so bad. For 10 minutes, I think he dry heaved. And I laughed. I couldn't help. I laughed so hard it hurt. Uh, <laughs> that's the video that I want to, to, to you just yeah, picture it. <laughs> yeah, Kodak moment for sure. Yeah, so that that's what it's nice to get get up in the ranks. You don't have to squirrel around so quite so much, but when a, hel- a helping hand is needed, many times I've held that leg and you know, oh, yeah. acted along with them. Yeah. It's good to stay grounded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. I'm glad you said that. It's mm-hmm. good to stay grounded. It's good to to remember what the the guys are beginning or going through. Yep, and staying connected and grounded. And uh, yeah, I think it makes you a a much better super. Of course, it does. Of course, and, it does. I'd never, you know, ask somebody else to do something I wouldn't do. Right. So. Or you haven't done in the past. Exactly. Oh, I definitely, uh, the, the certain things I probably wouldn't do anymore, but I'm mm-hmm. done. Been there, done that. Right. Now it's your turn, bud. Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm here. I'm your support system. <laughs> but Fair. I, uh, I always loved getting into those lower cases. I thought it was the best part about being a lieutenant. I got to go wherever hot case was and not have the paperwork. Yep. So. Well, that, yeah. You know, hold the leg to the moose or, you know, use your experience and your, 
your interview skills to, to get that information out. And, and I really enjoyed that because I got involved in a lot more cases uh, other than my own. Yep. But that I didn't get the paperwork to go with it. And, and that's what a supervisor should do. I mean, you should, you know, share whatever you know, your knowledge, your experience. And that's why I enjoy, you know, working with the training branch so much because I find it rewarding to share my experience. What's the point of, you know, retiring at what point and leaving with your knowledge and not letting anybody else have it? I mean, you might as well pass it on. What's the point? I mean, if you're not going to be working in enforcement anymore, what's the point of holding on to, you know, whatever you know, be it uh, knowledge of the resource or knowledge of a technique or interview skills, whatever. I mean, it, it's rewarding to pass it on and see somebody else use it and take it further and uh, become better. And that's, yeah, that's how I find it. It's rewarding. Even as a retired guy, the you know officers call me every now and then and yeah. say, Hey, you dealt with this guy. Hey, you know, this area. And, you know, it's just, that's, that's rewarding to have them. Of course it is. Suck that knowledge from you. Yeah. What's the point on, in keeping it to yourself? I mean, we're not going to be dealing with the offenders anymore. We're not going to be as involved with a resource. I mean, you might as well let somebody else have it and become part of their learning experience. Right. And I know I got a lot of young game wardens, game warden babies, as, as Georgia likes to call them listening to this, but I, I got to tell you, use those resources of those retired wardens mm-hmm. that are in your area, you know, your supervisors, but those retired guys, they have so much knowledge and they want to share. Of course. They want to jump in your cruiser for a day and tell you about everything. And it might be, the information might be a little outdated yep. sometimes, but uh, you're going to gain so much knowledge so much quicker by taking a day and, and talking to the retired warden and having him ride in your cruiser. A, he's going to love that, that you're doing mm-hmm. that you're, you're sucking that information out and you are going to be learning so much uh, so quick and don't be afraid to ask i mean there's there isn't a stupid question there isn't i mean it doesn't matter right. it doesn't matter at all i mean you're i mean if, if somebody is going nobody's going to judge you for asking a question i mean unless you keep asking the same question over and over <laughs> again <laughs> until you get the answer you want yeah. <laughs> That's that's just human nature. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet. So, um, yeah. No. Uh, thanks for sitting down and uh, it was a pleasure ha- having this little chat and kind of filling us in in uh, Canada, the mirror of uh, nor- the North American experience, which uh, we mirror each other quite well. We do. We do. I mean, a lot. The work that we do. I mean, the legal systems are somewhat different. I mean, they're similar but somewhat different. But the nature of the work and, you know, the the, the, the the modus operandi of the offenders and often we, we deal with the same resource, uh, we, de- we, de- we deal with the same challenges, we, we deal with very similar people. Uh, we don't exactly go about it the same way because of our legal systems and we have, you know, uh, to respect people's rights and so forth and make sure that they're prosecuted fairly and whatnot. But, uh, I mean, we have basically a, a game warden is a game warden no matter where you work. That's why... I enjoy coming to these conferences so much because you get to share with people you'd never talk to otherwise unless, you know, you're all in the same spot and sharing stories and whatnot. So take advantage of the training sessions, take advantage of the business meetings and see what people are doing. And you learn from other people's experiences. Again, I mean, it's, uh, we have so much in common that we, uh, the more we share, the better off we are. And then networking, I know the Colonel of uh, Tennessee referenced that. And, 
It's priceless. It is. Uh, communication has changed so much in our tenure with so much uh, digital uh, information available, but nothing beats sitting down with your peers. No. Cramming out cases, having that chat, experiences, trends. Um, th- th- there's a lot changing in wildlife, but for sure. Mm-hmm. We are definitely um, seeing the end maybe of traditional working night hunters with thermals. Uh, and some states are, and maybe provinces as well, are experiencing a lot more uptick in thermal use. And other states, they're going to be experiencing that. But let's suck the knowledge that they're learning out of ahead of time. Um, drones are going to be so much more in use. Of course. Uh, from the poacher aspect and, and the enforcement. And then you get into, you know, the all the challenges that go with it. I mean, the privacy expectations and... It's a fine line. I mean, it's technology that we can use, but we yeah. need to be... Uh, what is the cartilage in the air? And exactly. We talk about cartilage, we're talking about roundhouses. Yes. Can we put a drone 300 feet above? Is that still in their cartilage? Exactly. I mean, there, there's a lot of questions to be asked. There's a lot of questions to be asked, and the courts will have to clarify these questions. Right. It's, uh, you know, we're, it's, it's, it's uncharted. I mean, yeah. nobody. it's something that we have never done before, yeah. and we'll have to learn how to use it properly, and I'm sure... There's going to be case law I and mean, both positive and negative yeah. that are going to be, you know, setting the boundaries as to how we can use it. Yeah. I find that exciting. I find uh, new it is changing and uh, how we address them and how we, and, and you can't be scared to, you just, you, you got to charge forward with what you have. Exactly. Like you said that there's going to be decisions made. You may think it's bad, but those, those are the things, but make the best case possible and put that forward. And then let the courts make that decision. Exactly. So let your prosecutor guide you. Exactly. And um, yeah. if your prosecutor is comfortable, I mean, why not? I mean, we need to we need to clarify that mm-hmm. whole technology, yeah. new technology uh, I know resource. We've seen some guiding uh, stuff with drones uh, as far as guides locating moose uh, with drones. That's, yep. You know, For sure. You know, and giving that edge now, which, uh, you know, we don't want to give that edge because... Uh, if we over harvest our animals, we know, um, I know Colorado expects 30% of their elk is going to be harvested compared to what they issue in tags. So that's the foundation. But if you up that edge with technology and they start using drones and now 40%, 50%, 60% is now getting harvested because of technology, then, right. then that's just going to offset that whole dynamic. Balance, balance for sure. Yep. Yeah. Then are, you he... start, are you starting to see a lot of that in Canada? Um. Not, re- I mean, it's out there. Mm-hmm. With what we do with waterfowl enforcement and uh, inter- international trade, not so much, but I'm sure provincial agencies are dealing with it a lot more right. when it comes to scouting for big game and locating, you know, trophy animals. I'm definitely something that the provinces are, I'd say, with certainty that they're dealing with it. it it's, I mean, they're, uh, the, the legislation has been changed. I mean, it's been modified to, uh, take into account that these tools are could be used but i mean that doesn't mean that people are not doing it right so right. i'm sure it, it's it's a it's a more of an issue with uh, with provincial partners things will change technology's changing mm-hmm. and game warden's got to change with it. we have to adapt yeah otherwise we, we will become obsolete that's that's right and i think the newer generation because they're growing up and it has a much more ad- adaptivity yep. compared to our generation that, you know, we'll just keep doing it the way we've done it forever. Right. But we're now we're not being effective by doing it that way. Nope. We need to learn the new tricks. Yes. Yes. The old drug needs to learn the new tricks. Yes. 
But no, thanks for uh, sitting down with me, Martin, and uh, you know sharing uh, Canada's uh, federal enforcement agencies uh, information and geography. Yep, uh, I'm glad we could do it because uh, we we spoke about it at the, at the main field day three years back. Yeah, and then COVID hit, right? Yeah. So uh, we didn't get a chance to um, really get together for a long time. So I'm glad we we were able to do this today. Right. And COVID helped uh, my podcast a ton as far as, uh, you know, I just started doing Zoom meetings and, and podcasting from that and no one had a camera set up and no one knew how to do it. COVID hits and, you know, in three months, everybody was doing it. Again, I didn't have to take 30 minutes to explain and try to set things up. So I was just, uh, I'm like, there's some there's some good stuff that came out of COVID, I of course. to say. It seemed like everybody and their brother started podcasting during COVID too, because they had nothing else to do. So I'm glad Warden's Watch got a little a bit ahead of that wave, uh, right? Because uh, we we definitely uh, uh, we're, we're ahead of the game, which I'm very happy. So yeah, as as we're doing this, we're over a hundred thousand downloads in six months. So wow, yeah. So it, it's 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 doing well. Good. Um, so not not the bottom feeder. I always tell people, but not the not the top. We're we're not a meat eater by any means, but you know that's our goal. <laughs> good. That's a good place to be. Thanks, Martin. Thank you. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experience of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, 